that reign over us. God gave man the right to hold authority judicially in order to restrain human sin. Without government, there's absolute chaos that reigns. And if you ever go to any society where government is completely broken down, you know that to be true. With government, there is some restraint on man's sin and sufficient order to allow good people, good men, to survive, even thrive. And last week we said that there are three institutions ordained by God for the good of man. And the first one was what? Who remembers what the first one was? Very good. No one else. Okay. You're too scared to say? So you weren't here. Yeah, you're, you're off the hook. Yeah, you can remember. Marriage, right? Genesis chapter 2. There. Lord agrees. Okay. Marriage, uh, Genesis chapter 2 talks about marriage and family. That's the first divine institution that God gave to man. Family, then, is the foundation of all human relationships. Designed by God to provide a place for intimacy, intimate fellowship, safety, security, joy, nurture, growth, all of those good things. Now that happened before the fall, so that's the initial plan. Sadly, sin entered into the picture, man rebelled, and in that rebellion, his nature was corrupted and twisted, so much so that by Genesis chapter 6, which is just a little way into human history, the Bible says in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. That kind of a world cannot form the basis for the drama of human history that God is going to unfold. So God judges the world with a terrible, overwhelming, destructive act, a flood, a judicial act of God of global proportions, literally transforming the earth, the environment, the weather, and the life of men and beasts on the whole planet forever. In a sense, God starts over, only in a sense, because the people he starts over with, just eight people, Noah and his sons and their wives, are not sinless people. They're carrying the same nature, the fallen nature that Adam and Eve brought into the world. So in a sense, God starts over. But although the water may represent sort of a cleansing of the earth and man's moral pollution, those eight people are not in a state of innocence. Not like Adam and Eve in creation. Noah and his sons are still sinners. And though saved by faith, Noah still passes on to his progeny a fallen human nature. The same one you got from your parents and the same one I passed on to my children. Sorry again. He's a sinner. His sons are sinners. But God chooses to grant man the power to restrain sin so he inaugurates a new, a new rule. Genesis 9-6. Here it is. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for, here's the reason, in the image of God, he made man. In other words, man made in God's image is so valuable that man is given the right, this is the initiation of human government, to restrain sin by killing or putting to death in a legal way those that commit murder. So the, the laws of capital punishment is divinely ordained for man to protect himself and society from the extreme wickedness of men. So man is given the judicial responsibility to restrain evil, even taking the life of murderers. 
and thus affirming the value of human life. Why should a murderer lose his own life? Because that life he took was not a beast, but a human being made in the very image of God. For in the image of God he made man. So this, Genesis 9-6, is the beginning of human government. The right and the authority to punish evil so man won't degenerate to pre-flood levels of senseless violence and eternal struggles for power and monstrous evil. Now, so Paul says in our text today, Genesis, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So it's serious business to oppose governmental authority because it is God's institution and bears divine authority. Now the third institution created by God is the church, the institution of redemption a community of those who have been restored to God and now serve his kingdom. No longer rebels, the church does God's work in the world. So, one, the original institution of human society, which is marriage, good, you're picking it up now. Two is government, to restrain evil. And the church is the third, to extend and support and nurture those involved in the great work of redemption. Government, then, is instituted by God just like family and church, and we are to respect it with the same earnestness we grant to family and church as we are to be loving and dutiful spouses, as we are to worship and serve in God's church, so we are to be good citizens of our nation, careful to respect authority and to obey the laws of the land. We are to be in subjection. We talked about that word last week. It means to order yourself under. It's like ranking in a military situation. You order yourself under the governmental authority so that when they say jump, we jump. Now, we finished um, last week with some provocative questions. How far does this subjection go? Is it ever right to disobey the government? What about protesting or civil disobedience? If the government is evil, should we obey that? Or are revolutions always wrong? Or is there ever an ever appropriate time to overthrow a government that is wicked? Those are all good questions, and they're very relevant because Christians around the world have to deal with these kinds of issues and questions all the time, especially in the last several hundred years where revolution has become actually a political philosophy. And civil disobedience is a very common means of expression in the modern media-generated world. We were confronted with this issue recently. Were we not, in a sense, when a, a federal court overturned the Pledge of Allegiance and all of a sudden the entire Congress went out there? And in an, Now, technically, it wasn't civil disobedience because the Ninth Circuit doesn't govern Washington, D.C., but that's kind of what they wanted it to be like. So they all went out there on the Capitol steps and said the Pledge of Allegiance, right? In defiance of a court that had declared it unconstitutional. So right there, you've got an example of the kind of thing is that right or is that wrong? If the court says not to say it, should you say it? All that kind of stuff. Well, good Christians actually disagree about some of these complex questions. Now, when good Christians disagree about complex questions, that leaves us with a responsibility to be good Bereans. You know what a Berean is in the Bible? It's a person that searches the Word of God 
to make the right determination for what they should do. That is, we should examine the scriptures carefully and draw the best conclusions that we can and then follow our conscience on those matters. So let's make it our task this morning to look at least the major teachings of scripture on our duty to government and what is or is not appropriate. We already mentioned two important things, one factual and one moral. The factual one is that government is God's institution, not man's. Forms of government may be human institutions or human decisions, but the, the fact of human authority over other human beings in a governmental structure is God's institution, not man. So you cannot ignore the moral claim that government has on you. And the moral claim is this, to be in subjection, to order yourself under the authority of government, to rank ourselves under. We also talked about government's purpose, which is our good. Verse 3 of chapter 13, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. The primary duty of government is to punish and restrain evil. Now, as we saw in Genesis 9-6, and Paul affirms here, government is, e is given by God even the power of life and death. It is not right for a Christian to say we have, the government has no right to take a human life. God gives the government the right to take a human life. So whether you agree with capital punishment personally or not, don't say it's not appropriate because if God says it's okay, it's okay. He instituted it. It's his idea. Governments are to make evil men afraid. That's how they restrain evil. And they are to be the avengers for society on those who do evil, limiting their activity. Interestingly, last night I was watching CNN and they had a show on about Leslie Van Houten, who's one of the Manson murderers trying to get... Um, released after all these years and actually according to law she probably should be but um, they had the prosecutor Vince Bugliosi who wrote the book about the Manson murders way back then he was the prosecutor of the case against Charles Manson and it was interesting because he said Bugliosi said in the show he said look we use the word justice he says what is justice and Larry King's like oh well what is it Vince you know and because uh, he doesn't know but uh, <laughs> Bugliosi says justice is just another word for vengeance because we're always really careful to say, well, it's not vengeance we're after. Yes, it is vengeance that we're after. Just vengeance. Now, it's not... You see, we, we make mistakes. We get all these category mistakes. Government should be the avenger. Vengeance is wrong when you are seeking revenge. Vengeance is right when governments are seeking revenge. We talked about it all last week. It's the public versus private thing. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, do not resist evil, he's talking about you and your personal behavior with other human beings. You have no right to take revenge. And the reason for that, that's what Paul is saying at the end of chapter 12. Verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Then in chapter 13 he says what? You can do that because government will be the source of vengeance for you. That's what God instituted it for. So even if you are being what Jesus said to be and, all, and loving your enemies and doing all that appropriately, it is appropriate for government to be the restraining and punishing power. Justice is vengeance. 
That's true. So the primary duty of government, the primary duty is to punish and restrain evil. That's what Paul says here. So, a Christian is to support the government in this, and it is a noble calling to do that. It is a noble calling to be a police officer. It is a noble calling to be a prosecuting attorney. It's a noble calling to be an executioner. Those are not forbidden things. It's a noble calling to be a soldier to defend your country. Twice in verse 4, the governing authority is called a minister of God. It's the same word used for deacons in the New Testament about church officers. They are deacons of God, servants of God, to do what? Minister God's vengeance. An avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. That is the government's purpose. So the law enforcement system is a servant of God for our good. If we are good, that's what he's saying. If you're good, you've got nothing to fear. Verse 3, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. And that's exactly what a Christian life should be. A government should look at churches and Christians and say, those are good citizens. It is a, a wonderful thing to have those people in our country because they obey the laws, they're respectful to authority, they do not cause us trouble, they don't cause us aggravation, they do what we ask them to do. They're good citizens. That's exactly how they should perceive us. Now, some Christian thinkers believe that our duty to government, based on this text, is basically absolute. That the only exception being one that every Christian agrees on, and what would that exception be to obeying the government? All Christians agree that our first duty is where? To God. Good. I'm glad you know that. We are actually citizens of two kingdoms, right? And that makes, at times, a conflict. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, and we are citizens of the nation we are citizens of, the United States in our case. Dual citizenship sometimes means the possibility of divided loyalties, right? There may have to be, there may be conflict and choices have to be made. What if our government asks us to go against God? What if we are asked to sin or to disobey God or forsake our duty to God? Then what? God comes first. Always. 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 The classic case here is the response of the apostles to the governing Jerusalem council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 when they say, Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. Because they had told them, you can't preach about Jesus anymore. Now there's the conflict. They have to preach about Jesus because he commanded them to do that. You shall be my witnesses. So they said, we have to obey God rather than men. I'm sure they said it respectfully. But that's what had to be. When is it a clear choice? When it is a clear choice between God and men, you have to serve God. That's just not up for debate. And all worthy Christians believe that. What is open for debate is what we do with a government that does not do what God intended it to do. What if the government becomes a terror to good behavior? What if it brings wrath upon the one who practices good? What if it is so corrupt that it becomes itself a cause of evil continuously? Well, some weighty Christian thinkers see in Romans 13 and the description here of what government should do as a measure of government's legitimacy. In other words, if a government isn't doing this, what Paul says it exists for, then that government is no longer legitimate. A government that does not serve the good 
forfeits its claim in, in this thinking to be a legitimate gover- government and can only be can not only be opposed by Christians but can actually be overthrown that's the idea John Calvin the great theologian said resistance can never be private you have no right of personal resistance against the government but except you know of course if they command you to do something that's evil you can but if there is a legitimate representative of the people to resist a tyrannical ruler then Christians can support that representative on their behalf to resist tyranny that's what he said and that was a pretty common view amongst the reformers so this principle was actually followed and put into practice in the English Civil War you know we had our Civil War England had a Civil War 200 years before ours when the Parliament was at war with the king Parliament represented the people the king in their opinion was being a tyrant so Parliament went to war with the king to overthrow him now under Calvin's theology that's a legitimate thing if the king is indeed a true tyrant interestingly enough by the end of the English Civil War the Parliament was dominated and the English army the parliamentarian army was dominated by Puritan Christians very devout Bible-centered people and if you know anything about English history, that's, they actually did overthrow the king. Um, Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan, became the, not the king, he would not become a king, but the um, protector of England, it was called, and that they had a short reign where the Puritans actually ruled England for a short time. Many of them, before the English Civil War, fled to America. That's where our founding colonies, our Puritan colonies came from. But the Puritans that stayed in England joined the Parliamentarian army and overthrew the king, overthrew the king of England. So that's what happened. The parliamentarian army and the political leadership, which was Puritan, was victorious. And it was among those Puritans that the first debates and considerations of what we call modern democracy took place. Modern democracy owes its origin to 17th century Puritans. I don't, you will not hear that in school, but that is true. When you get to higher levels of education and you study the origins of modern democracy, it started with the Puritan overthrow of Charles I because the Puritans had serious debates in the parliamentarian army on voting, giving, who should get the vote, and it was, they would talk about ideas of universal suffrage versus just property, and all of those ideas. We talk about modern democracy. That's where it began in the modern world. The same principle of, of representative resistance you see in the American Revolution. See, our revolution was not an attempt by some guy who thought he should be king to overthrow the king of England. That was the traditional European revolt type situation which would be anti-biblical. What did we have? We had a representative body chosen by us, the Continental Congress, representing us, determining that the king was a tyrant and that we were being denied the rights of common Englishmen and so we were going to separate ourselves from his government. We weren't concerned about overthrowing England or denying him his authority in his own lands, but we were declaring our independence. It was a war of independence. So there was no attempt or desire to overthrow the king. So from a Calvinistic point of view, that would be a legitimate form of revolution. Jonathan Mayhew, who was a Boston minister, very prominent, published a famous sermon way back in 1750, well before the revolution happened, a sermon on Romans 13. His point was that we have an absolute right to resist a king not fulfilling his Romans 13 obligations. If he's not acting for our good and restraining evil for our good, then we have a right to depose him. He says, um, let me give you an exact quote. This is part of the sermon. He said, it is our duty, for example, to obey our king 
If it is our duty, for example, to obey our king merely for this reason, that he rules for the public welfare, which is the only argument the apostle makes use of, it follows by a parity of reason that when he turns tyrant and makes his subjects his prey to devour and destroy instead of his charge to defend and cherish, we are bound to throw off our allegiance to him and to resist. And that according to the tenor of the apostle's argument in this passage. I'm not totally sure Paul would agree with that. But it is an interesting point. He says Romans 13 supports resistance to tyrants because Romans 13 tells us what rulers ought to do. So if they don't do it, remove them and get a government that will do it. So many good men, good men have followed this line of reasoning. But if we embrace that as a principle, you have to do that with very great caution. Because there are unscrupulous men, and in the 20th century you can see dozens and dozens of examples, unscrupulous men and evil political ideologies who like to cover their revolutions with talk that seems consistent with these older Christian thinkers. Oh, it's for the good of the people, we're doing it for you, blah, 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 you know, we'll represent you. And then, of course, their intention is not to do that at all, but to magnify their own power or whatever. So it would be pretty easy, communists are especially good at this, be pretty easy to lure people into supporting a revolution where there's no intention of providing the kind of justice that Paul talks about in the in dutiful government. So situations must be very extreme, very extreme to move to the level of a revolution. But even extreme provocation is not enough if you do not have a good idea of what's going to follow. Because if you're going to have a revolution and what's going to follow isn't better, you'd better not have a revolution. See? The American Revolution led to a functional republic, which did good for many people. The French Revolution led to an untold number of murders and terror and the guillotine and dictatorship. So that was not a good revolution. Needless to say, that was an atheistic revolution in its moral underpinnings, its philosophical underpinnings. So you have to be careful. Now, modern theologians have adopted principles of just war theory, which we've talked about before here, uh, and brought those over into a revolutionary situation. So there's seven basic principles they say you should consider if you're going to adopt the possibility of a revolution being a legitimate thing. Number one, the cause has to be just. Truly, the cause has to be just. Everybody says their cause is just, right? But the cause really does have to be just. It must be a case where the demands of fundamental justice heavily outweigh the desire for peace and nonviolence. In other words, there must be such an absolute removal of justice that it is a legitimate thing to risk um, the loss of peace for that. Second, the revolution should be a last resort. All peaceful means should be pursued before it ever gets to that level, which is what the parliamentarians in England thought that they were doing. They negotiated and negotiated and negotiated and the king kept breaking his promises and eventually they chopped his head off. Number three, the call to revolution should come from a lawful authority. For example, we just said the Continental Congress here. Another example might be in World War II where the French government was in exile. Charles de, Charles de Gaulle was in exile. France was being governed by Germans. Now, do the Germans owe their primary loyalty to the... I mean, do the French people owe their primary loyalty to the German conquerors or to the existing government in exile? Well, their hearts are with the existing government in exile, right? So they had a legitimate representative, but it wasn't in-country. Interesting. A modern example of that might even be the uh, Afghan situation where the uh, ruler was living out of country. 
Number four, there must be wide support among the people. You can't just throw a revolution that nobody wants. <laughs> you know, your tiny group of uh, weirdo attackers or something. Leaders in a just revolution are not engaging in personal or private actions. It really is representative of the desire of the majority of the people. Number five, there should be a reasonable hope of victory. To throw away lives and cause a war and turmoil and destruction with no prospect for victory is not right. So there has to be a reasonable prospect for victory. Six, there should be proportionality. That is, the good to be achieved has to clearly outweigh the effect of using violent means. It has to really lead to a greater good. Seven, right means have to be used in the revolution itself. Revolutionaries can't be monsters like the French revolutionists were or war criminals and seeking their objectives. You can't torture people and murder people, which makes the Palestinian situation today, for example, an illegitimate re revolution against the Israeli occupation of their land because they are terrorists. And that's not a legitimate, from a Christian point of view, that's not a legitimate means of revolution. So, if you take the position that rebellion against civil rulers is justifiable in extreme cases, you should really consider these principles as um, very carefully because that's what some pretty solid folk have come up with. What about civil disobedience? What about breaking laws to draw attention to injustices? Well, similar thing. Civil disobedience should be viewed along similar lines. Being one of the, either one of the stages of peaceful protest before any sort of revolution should even be considered. Now, of course, some people would consider civil disobedience the absolute limit. The revolution is not legitimate as an option because, because it involves violence, and it does. So maybe civil disobedience in some people's minds would be the final step. Martin Luther King Jr. had that point of view. That's the far as you can go, nonviolent resistance to draw attention to laws. In fact, he explained his philosophy very well in the letters from a Birmingham jail. Have you guys had to read that stuff in school? Anybody read Martin Luther King's school? Nobody read Martin Luther King's school. This country's in a lot of trouble. Um, let me read for you <laughs> some of what he said, because um, he's following these same principles we talked about. And he's writing the letter to people that don't agree with him breaking laws. For example, they held up, the reason they were in jail in Birmingham, Alabama, is because they had a parade without a permit. And if you remember those days of movies, they turned on the hoses and brought out the attack dogs and sicked them on the crowds and all that stuff and uh, throw them in all in jail. He said in his letter, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a, a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that the unjust law is no law at all. What is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and, a segregate, and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. So he's using this just law theory, which is ancient. I mean, that is traditional Christian thinking. He's just applying it in a new way. Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with this. I'm just pointing it out. This is an option. 
There are some instances when a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I was arrested Friday on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there's nothing wrong with an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade. But when the ordinance is used to, to preserve segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and peaceful protest, then it becomes unjust. I hope you can see the distinction I'm trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as the rabid segregationists would do. This would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do it openly, lovingly, not hatefully as the white mothers did in New Orleans when they were seen on television screaming nigger, 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 and with a willingness to accept the penalty. Those are really important points he makes. It has to be done openly, lovingly, and willing to accept the penalty. That's what civil disobedience is. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and willingly accepts the penalty by staying in jail to arouse the conscience of the community over, it, over its injustice is in reality expressing the very highest respect for law. Of course, there was nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was, sublimely, it was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is in reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. And he goes on with the example of... Um, he says, everything Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary in World War II was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. But I'm sure if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today, where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws. So he goes on there, but you get the idea. He taps into classical Christian thinking on just laws, and he was doing a new thing based on these traditional ideas, and it was very effective. But King brings out these really important points regarding civil disobedience. You can't just break a law if you're doing it, if you're doing it privately, like, like this. Um, well, all my friends want hard liquor, and they don't allow it in my county, so I'm going to have a private still and make moonshine, because that's my right as an American. I'm defending the liberty of America to make moonshine and make a lot of money off my drunken friend. See, now that, that's not civil disobedience, because for one thing, you're doing it to make money, you're just breaking the law, you're doing it privately, you're not trying to get caught. Civil disobedience, the purpose is to get caught and arrested, to draw attention to an unjust law. And actually, our system in our country sort of allows for that. It's a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a proper principle in America to break laws to challenge them in court. You can't get a court challenge if nobody breaks the law. So there's sort of a principle there. So now I think, I'm not sure personally where I would stand on all of that, but I'm just saying these are options that Christian people consider and um, weigh in to the mix. So you know, you gotta decide for yourself that's appropriate. Civil disobedience is not being a private lawbreaker, that's the point. Um, you have an obligation to keep the law before God. And King believed that he was keeping the law in a higher sense, actually, by breaking what he calls an unjust law. So civil disobedience is actually a way to honor the law and the government process in the mind of those that believe that, that that's what they're doing. But it is a recognition that God did ordain institutions, and, and it also recognizes that human institutions can be corrupted by sin and have to be challenged. That's the idea behind civil disobedience. You know, sin does wreak havoc with God's institutions. 
family life and marriage can be shattered by sin, right? And infidelity. Churches can be corrupted by sinful and arrogant leadership or heresy or both, right? And that has to be dealt with. And governments, too, can deeply fail in their responsibility to do what they're supposed to be doing, which is acting for our good and restraining evil. So, you have to weigh all that into the mix. But it has to be said, I think, when you consider all this, that while there are examples of godly people disobeying immoral laws in the Old Testament and the New Testament, another example is the, uh, in Moses' time, the uh, midwives. Because what did the Egyptians order the midwives to do? To kill all the Israeli children when they were born. And what did they do about it? They didn't obey. They didn't obey. And they were considered rather heroic for not obeying an obviously immoral command from the government. But I have to say, we don't see any attempt by the church to foment trouble or revolution in the Roman Empire anywhere in the New Testament. It just doesn't do that. In fact, the church very patiently endured sporadic and sometimes very barbaric persecution for hundreds of years and waited for God to change the political situation. Now, it could be argued that the church didn't do anything about it because it couldn't. And according to the principles of um, just revolution, if there's no hope of victory, you don't do that. You could argue that, but I don't think they were ever even thinking in those terms. You certainly don't see any talk about it in any of the church fathers or anywhere in the New Testament, any sense of revolution against Rome. So while it could be said that early Christianity had no chance of success, it seems more fair to say they had no interest in fomenting any kind of revolution. So think that through, put it in the mix. In the book of Acts, Paul even appeals to Roman justice. He's a citizen, he appeals to the court system, he works his way through the court system, and uh, in order to continue his work of the gospel. He never suggests overthrowing lawful authority. And truthfully, despite imperial craziness from time to time, and you have to remember who they were dealing with, Nero, Caligula, I mean, not normal people. You know, one of those guys married his horse. I mean, they're strange people. (laughs) Despite the imperial kooks, the Roman system really did work for justice. Uh, generally speaking, and did punish evil and had an orderly society. They were big on an orderly society. And they did punish evildoers, which gave the early church a peaceful environment to spread the gospel. Because persecution did come, but it was rather sporadic. And generally, Christians had a lot of freedom to spread the gospel because they had an orderly society guaranteed by a very powerful government, which did punish evildoers. So, the apostles consistently followed the Lord Jesus in keeping the law with respect to governments, except where the law is in direct contradiction to God's revealed will. So says Paul, Romans 13. So says Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, Peter says this, 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as those sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So some of those kings, like I said, were about as wicked and as depraved as human beings could be. But they were respected in their position. Also, there is one kind of civil disobedience you may not try, and that is withholding the payment of I can't say the word. Oh, taxes. I got it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to pay your taxes. Christians are supposed to pay their taxes, even in support of immoral and corrupt governments. 
Because to not do so is to give credence to accusations of criminality and disloyalty and selfishness to the enemies of Christ. Those Christians are not interested in preserving the order. They're anti-government. That's not true. So you pay your taxes. Even to Rome. Verse 5. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, another important word there in verse 5, the word conscience. Christians may disagree with each, with each other about what being in subjection to government means in all circumstances or whatever, but that is uh, what it does include or doesn't include. But where you come down on these issues had better be for conscience' sake. See, not to gain some advantage for yourself, the desire to get away with something. It's got to be truly for conscience' sake. Verse 7 refers not only to taxes and customs, but fear and honor as well. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Government people needed to be treated with respect because of their position. Even if you think they don't do it very well, or they're from a different party or something like that, the position they hold is ordained by God, they are ministers of God, and they should be treated accordingly. Are we doing okay with that? So your conscience should tell you that, to be respectful of positions of authority. Your conscience should direct you to pay your taxes. Your conscience should direct you to obey the law, even if it's inconvenient. Maybe even more so when it's inconvenient. Of all people, Christians should be the most reliable in the society for preserving the social order. That's how we should be seen. And we do this by obeying the laws, telling the truth in judicial proceedings, even when it hurts us to do so, paying our taxes, all the taxes we owe, and rendering proper respect to those in power or their agents. That's what we're supposed to do. That is part of our corporate witness to the God we serve. So our place in His eternal kingdom actually makes us more, not less, dutiful servants of the earthly kingdom we happen to be born under. And so much of it has to do with our greatest and our highest motivation. What is the great motivation of the Christian life? Love. Love is the basis for every Christian act. Earlier I read to you Dr. King's definition of civil disobedience. Even that cannot, for the Christian, be anything but full of love. And that's what he says. One who breaks an unjust law must do it openly, lovingly. And if it's done without love, it shouldn't be done at all. And he was right about that. The motive has to be love. That's what Paul says in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now we'll move into that next week. Martin Luther has a whole discussion of what it means for a Christian to be in this state. You have a little quote from him in your bulletin which kind of hints at it. But he said, you know what? A Christian doesn't need to obey the laws. Because a Christian is free from all laws because a Christian always does what is right because he loves God and loves his neighbor. But he does obey all the laws willingly and freely because it helps their neighbor. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. He says, we're free in Christ because we're so right in him that we don't need laws to govern us. Now, I don't, they didn't have traffic in those days, so I don't know about that. But, um, but his point is really interesting. We'll get a little bit more into that, actually. But what you do owe to everyone is to love them and love what does what is right always to other people. And that's what we're here for. So, we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. 
Father, we just thank you for being such a gracious God, for giving us governments to protect us, for servants to oversee us, and indeed, sometimes we gripe and we grumble and we complain, but indeed, what would be like life be like if it was a true anarchy? Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the compassion to deal with those that are over us properly and in a way that would be most glorifying to you, the greatest witness for Christ, and the most beneficial to those around us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.